You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. Now, procedures in hospital settings can be invasive and uncomfortable, and whilst most adults and older children are able to cope with these, usually, young children can find these procedures actually quite scary. So these patients will actually need some assistance to help them cope and to ensure that the necessary procedures can be performed with minimal discomfort. Now, by procedures, I'm actually referring to things within the hospital environment. So I'm talking about things like x-rays and fluoroscopy studies, all the way through to nasogastric insertions and IV line insertions and even immunizations. And these need to be performed without creating medical trauma. And many children and young people find medical procedures challenging, and this might be especially true for patients who are neurodiverse. And interestingly, the experience that a patient has in previous similar situations will have a large impact on how they prepare and cope with the next procedure. So to talk more about this, we're joined today by Stacey Richards and Emma McDonald. So Stacey is a clinical nurse consultant, primarily in the nursing research team, and also leads a lot of the RCH procedural holding committee, along with Jenny O'Neill. Emma is a clinical nurse consultant for procedural pain management with the RCH Comfort Kids team. So welcome to you both. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Hello. So let's start with some of the terminology when it comes to helping patients with these procedures. And we like to steer clear of terms such as immobilization and restraint because they are negative and can make one think of being held down, which we'll kind of get to later. Stacey, start with you. What are some of the terms that we refer to? We conducted a study here at RCH a couple of years ago. And during this study, we showed 14 pictures of different ways children could be held for procedures yeah. um, and ask staff to list off how they might refer to that procedural hold yeah. um, in practice. And what we found from that, that there were up to 34 terms that they would use to 34. describe different holds. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. So it shows that we are using a wide range of language to describe the same thing. And yeah. it's really then hard to know what we are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for one picture in particular, we found that there were up to 11 terms and then up to 20 terms used by different clinicians to describe the same hold. Wow. That's amazing. Well. So what, what kind of terms are we talking about? Um, so things like procedural holding, therapeutic hold, koala holds, hugging holds, comfort holds, a whole range of different terms. Yep. Some were based on what the procedure looked like, what the hold looked like, and others were more generalised terms as well. Yep. So what we found from there was that there were a couple of terms that were used commonly, so procedural holding, procedural restraint and restraint. Yep. And what the procedural holding committee then worked towards was developing a shared understanding, acknowledging that if we could use the same language, at least we all knew what we were talking about as well. So here at RCH, we've gone with procedural holding as the umbrella term for when we are holding a child to do a medical procedure. Yeah. Many of the t different terms can mean different things, right? It can, yeah. With the B positive resource that we developed in conjunction with um, Comfort Kids and Child Life Therapy here at RCH, we went with the term comfort holds as something that we thought children would have a better understanding of. It's mm -hmm. aimed at younger children, you know, preschoolers into primary school. And the clinical term that we're using, procedural holding, 
is probably a little bit maybe too abstract for them when they don't really understand what procedures necessarily are. So we went down the route of comfort holding um, because that is our ultimate aim when we're holding children for procedures is that they are comforted, that they feel safe and supported in that procedure. And that's what that video is all about. Yeah. Okay. So are are we talking then that healthcare professional may use procedural holding, whereas if we're discussing it with children, we would use comfort holding? Yeah, I think um, we're definitely working on standardizing their language we use as healthcare workers. I think for children, it is a little bit more complex because you've got to meet them with where they are at. And again, we had big discussions about what language to use that would be um, safe and appropriate for them. And I would recommend that staff, um, you know, went with familiar language for that child, perhaps what the family are already using as well. And if nothing is being used, the idea hasn't been introduced, then Comfort Holds is a really good place to start for children to try and pop them on the path to understand what's going to happen in that procedure. Yeah. So let's today then use the term procedural holding as our standard term. And if we look at the more common procedures that occur in any setting, whether it's inside or outside of RCH, I'm kind of thinking like a blood test or immunization or x-ray in Yes, at RCH, many of us do have experience or even training in helping patients in these types of procedures, but not all of us do. We get a lot of staff that are very, very new to the, to the hospital that don't have any pediatric experience. And certainly outside of RCH, I'd imagine this is even less so. And often we're faced with situations that we don't necessarily expect. You may plan as much as you like, but we may also get a situation that we're not quite expecting. So... What are some of the simple things that people can do to ensure that patients are comforted and safe during these procedures? I think from a comfort kids perspective, we always say that planning is the most important step for successful procedures. So the more that we can plan beforehand, particularly with the child and their family, to sort of individualise a plan that's going to work best for them, mm-hmm. especially often when we're dealing with children who might have neurodiversity, their needs might be quite specific to themselves. Yeah. Um, So it's all about that sort of pre-procedure planning considerations. And we think about that in terms of lots of different factors. So um, things like the environment. So where are we going to do this procedure? Is it a procedure that requires a specific space? Like obviously in the medical imaging world, you'll have rooms that patients need to be in for their procedures because of the equipment that's required. Yeah. Um, How will we communicate the procedure that the patient needs to them and to their family? We find sometimes it's even as simple as saying, we need to do this procedure because, and a child might not have, actually been told what they're having or why they need it. Mm. That simple yeah, step can be really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then wherever we can give them choices in those things as well. So although maybe the environment is set, perhaps whether or not they sit on mum's knee or they sit by themselves or they have a choice between a chair or a bed, wherever we can give sort of small choices that make children feel empowered is always really helpful. Yep. Um, positioning is obviously key. That's why we're here to chat about it today. Um, and like Stacey said, some of the Ways that we explain positioning to children are different to the way we might discuss them as professionals, but um, we're always looking at what satisfies both sort of comfort of the patient and safety of the patient and staff in the room. Yep. Um, and thinking about too, what specific area of the patient's body do we need for the procedure? So if we're just doing an immunization or a blood test, for example, we really only need access to their arm or their arm to be still. So if the patient wants to wiggle their legs around and play with their other arm in some sort of way, that's okay. We don't need a full still patient if they can otherwise be sort of safe and still with the limb that we need. Yep. Think about things like what kind of coping strategies that person might like to use. 
often it's things like breathing, distraction. It's really good, we find, to talk to families about coping strategies that they use at home. So if there's things that kids already do when they're doing something they don't really like, like brushing their hair or getting their fingernails clipped, <laughs> then let's try and use coping <laughs> strategies that kids already have at home because they're easier to translate into the hospital. Yep. Distraction's great. We've all seen the iPads and iPhones and things. Um, wherever possible, if it's a novel toy to the child, it usually works the best. If it's something they haven't seen before, they kind of engage with a bit more interest. Yeah. Um, and then we want to talk about things like maybe pain management and sedation if the procedure that we're going to do is potentially painful or requires them to be immobilised for a period of time. So that one there, is that, is that something that you kind of discuss with the team itself in terms of like, is the patient going to need sedation? What other kind of, you know, is any drugs that need to be kind of given from a pain perspective? Then? Yeah, yeah, we'd be asking things like, is, um, is it expected to be a painful procedure or is it expected to be a distressing procedure? Is that child already potentially exp- expressing some distress? Um, or do we need them to be really sort of still and safe for some reason? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting point you make, I think, in terms of the the pre-procedure stuff, like all of that kind of planning. And I, I think people sometimes don't appreciate how much planning actually goes into these types of things. And yes, when it comes to the adult world, if I'm putting a medical imaging hat on here, then we we do have to prepare the room and we've got to get the patient ready and things like that. But there's so many extra steps when it comes to kids in terms of what you actually have to do with them as well. What about during the procedure then? Yeah, so during the procedure, there's sort of two factors that are really important. That's sort of psychological supports and then physical supports. And procedural holding definitely fits under the umbrella of the physical support. So we want to make sure that kids are, um, wherever possible, upright, because that's a more sort of controlled and safe feeling for kids and adults. Yeah, I was going to mention here that upright is not always possible when it comes yeah. to things like imaging, because yeah. often, you know, you, you think of a CT scanner, mm-hmm. that can't be done upright. Yeah, totally. Some X-rays can't be, some fluoroscopy studies can't be as well. So that can make it difficult. I think and we and and we know, I think, from experience that when you are doing those types of things upright, that you do tend to tend to get a better cooperation from the patient. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's possibly just around explaining what type of position the patient will need to be and why they might need to be in that position, and perhaps minimising the time in a non-upright position, if possible. Mm. Um, and wherever possible, we. I, aim to minimise sort of restrictive intervention. Um, so comfort with mum or dad or somebody holding, um, ideally not physically restrained. Um, and then the psychological supports can be things like, we already said distraction, breathing, um, coping strategies that the child or the family has identified. So just implementing them, I guess. Yeah, the absolutely, procedure. making yeah. sure that they're available for during the procedure. Mm-hmm. And then what about post-procedure? Yeah, so afterwards is sort of the bit that's um, also really important but easy to forget, especially if the procedure hasn't gone so well. Everyone tends to sort of want to run away pretty quickly. Um, But there's real power in reinforcing all the positives that occurred. Um, So finding a way to sort of compliment something that the child's done really well. So maybe they held something still, maybe they took some deep breaths, or even maybe they just got up on the bed. Um, Give small rewards like stickers or toys or um, food treats are often the thing that gets gets kids through a procedure. (laughs) Even if it's a small thing, something that they did really well and giving them lots of praise and reinforcement around that. Yeah. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is um, for clinicians to think about what we sometimes refer to as a plan B here at RCH. So knowing when we would stop the procedure, if things weren't going the way we'd like them to go, if we weren't able to get that image done, that blood test, you know, addressing changed, if the child's becoming distressed, just knowing when we're going to stop 
and what we're going to try and do next, um, I think is really important for clinicians, no matter where you're working with children, to consider and go into the procedure having that in the back of your mind yeah, that, as well. Yeah, that's, that's one thing that I normally kind of cover as well when we have, say, student radiographers coming through our department is to say that in paediatrics, none of your patients are going to be textbook. Mm-mm. And so you learn the textbook way of doing things and then you come here and, you're, and everything goes out the window. So you do need to have a plan B. You actually need to have a plan Z because <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. but, but the good thing about it is that in almost everything that we do, there's always more than one way to do it, right? Absolutely. And I think um, sometimes pausing a procedure if it's not going to plan and the things you've originally put into place aren't working the way you'd hoped they were. Pausing and regrouping can be really helpful, not only for the clinicians involved, but it gives the child and the family a little bit of a break and a time to breathe and regroup themselves. Mm. Um, And from a clinical point of view, it gets you to sort of pause and think about a couple of things, including does this procedure need to be done right now? How Mm. urgent is it? Um, And what other opportunities do we have to do this procedure? And what else could we include? What are we missing? What could we try? Who else could we get involved to help through this procedure as well? Yeah. I think having that threshold of when we're going to stop and move on to the next thing also helps to avoid that sort of procedural creep where you can start to just sort of add a bit more and more and more. Absolutely. Comfort hold or restraint is often the, yeah. the thing that we start to see. And so rather than also making a bit of a plan on the fly for how we're going to change our plan, we already know once we get to this point, we're going to change to plan B. Yeah. The tricky part is actually knowing where that threshold is, though, isn't it? Really? Totally. It is. Yeah. And it's really different for every patient and family. But yeah, keeping in the back of your mind, if the child is becoming increasingly distressed, um, that's a good idea to have that pause. Yeah. Which actually brings me to my next point, which is that I've been in a lot of situations before where parents might actually just say, oh, let's just hold them down. Now, their aim, of course, is to think about kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid, so short and sharp. And it sounds easy for something that only makes or only takes a short amount of time, like an immunization or an x-ray or something like that. But I don't think that people really kind of appreciate the ongoing impact that this might have on the child and in some cases on the family as well. And in other cases, even on the actual people doing the procedure. So what for the patient, what are these likely effects for the patient of just holding them down and doing it? Um. There's a few things. There's both sort of short-term and long-term effects that we see. So some of the the issues with just doing the hold it down and get it done process can be things like increasing anticipatory anxiety. So the next time we have to do a test or a procedure, that anxiety is higher because you've already had a negative experience in the past. Yeah. Um, that can lead into things like um, continued avoidance of healthcare where kids are sort of not keen to come back towards healthcare in case they need to have tests or things that they've previously found tricky. And that can transfer right through into adulthood where we know that a portion of adults even avoid seeking healthcare because of traumas that they might have experienced in childhood related to procedures. Yeah. And we can see things like increased sensitivity to pain. So where a procedure has been painful before, a person is more likely to experience that procedure with a higher degree of pain in the future. And it might even require more analgesia in order to treat that pain. Mm. Um. Potentially, we're also seeing things like harder or prolonged procedures as we go forward. And a lot of the kids that we see in hospital sometimes require multiple visits. Um, And we might be making situations for both the child, the family and the healthcare providers where each visit sort of gets longer and more tricky because of all those built up negative experiences in the past. Yeah. And just coming back to that, the the pain one, 
it's not necessarily an increased sensitivity. It's all about perception of pain mm -hmm. as well, because obviously we all perceive pain um, in different ways as well. So it's about kind of how they perceive it. So I guess their tolerance of perception is probably going to be a little bit lower. Totally. Yeah. What about long-term, Stacey? So there's a wide range of long-term effects that we might see from procedures not being um, completed in an ideal way and um, increased procedural holding. So these might include things like sleep disturb disturbance, feeding problems, inability to self-regulate and regulate emotions um, and things like that. We also, as um, Emma pointed out, see an avoidance of healthcare that can last well into adulthood and long-term memories and really have people like not wanting to engage with healthcare professionals um, and have a lot of post-traumatic stress and things like that from that um, experience. So, wow, it seems so simple but unpleasant to just kind of hold them down, but that impact does actually sound pretty horrible. How can we then empower a practitioner to go back to the parent and to tell them that it's actually inappropriate for the patient to just do the hold down thing? I think it's just about making sure that we've explored all the other options and presenting those as options to the clinicians. So yeah. making sure that we have explored all the sort of non-pharmacological and pharmacological supports that we can use to before we get to restrictive intervention. And important to acknowledge that everyone has a different sort of parenting style, clinical background and experience with children during procedures. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, important to remember the families and children that we're working with aren't privy to all of the healthcare and health knowledge that we have as health clinicians. I think it can be really easy to just assume that everyone has the same baseline knowledge on health and the way we can do procedures. So I see it as a really important role for all healthcare clinicians to really advocate for our patients and our families that there is a better way. We don't have to have a high level of distress to get things done and to advocate those different options for them because they are possibly things that they just didn't even know were an option. Something that I've seen in my practice is just being able to say, actually, this isn't urgent. We don't need to do this procedure right now. Yeah. Let's pause and come back to it. And the parents, they don't necessarily know that they can do that and that there is a better time or there is another option. So speaking up for them, I think is really important. Yeah. I think a lot of times parents are saying, we'll just have to hold them because they think that if it's either hold them and do the procedure or don't do the procedure. When we mm. explain that there are ways to do the procedure without holding that that we can yeah. explore those options as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads um, really nicely into a study that the nursing research team conducted at the start of this year where we did interviews with families about their experiences in procedures and yeah. um, procedural holding. So the main themes we found from that study were that overall parents want to act as a protector for their child, which I'm sure comes as a surprise to nobody. So they will be communicating the child's needs and they're really feeling what the child is feeling as well. And then we found there was sort of a continuum where parents moved from a comforter, so where they're providing reassurance and being present into helping. So they're seeking a role. They might be helping with distraction, perhaps even helping hold a child's arm yeah. or hold them still into a parent as an enforcer role where they've really clicked into that. We've just got to get it done. Let's just get this over and done with as quickly as possible. 
Um, so I really see our job as healthcare clinicians in helping them move out of the enforcer role wherever possible because we often know there is a better way to do this and there are other options that we could explore as well. Yeah. And I think I just want to point out that at the time of recording today's podcast, um, this research is still a work in progress, right? It is. It's not published yet. Yeah. But watch this space, everyone. It's coming out. We're working towards (laughs) it. (laughs) Great to hear. I think that RCH is very lucky enough to have this procedural holding committee, which, of course, um, Stacey is one of the, the leaders of. Stacey, can you just explain to those listening what the procedural holding committee is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a really exciting opportunity for us here at RCH to bring together clinicians um, from a range of backgrounds to discuss procedures and particularly focus on procedural holding um, across the hospital in all the different settings that we see that occur here. Um, And in the committee, we're always considering ways to educate and empower staff um, and improve practice via obviously education and research. Yep. In terms of representatives on the committee, who, who are we looking at? So we've got a really wide range of clinicians involved who have a range of different experience in procedural holding. So they include nurses. We've um, got representation from pathology, radiography, doctors, a range of different educators from across the campus. We have representation from the clinical ethics team here at RCH, psychology staff, child life therapist um, and quality and improvement staff as well. Wow, that is a really good mix. We've tried to go as broad as we can. Um, we're always open to having new members at RCH join as well. Full disclosure here, I'm also on the committee representing medical imaging. I actually ended up joining about three years ago, kind of accidentally, when I was investigating an incident <laughs> and I happened to just get in contact with Jenny. So. Let's just talk about what we discuss in our meetings, Stacey. What do we what do we discuss? Yeah, so it's a real mix of case studies. So we have different clinicians come along and share a range of different cases that we see in all the different areas of the hospital. And in that those discussions, departments will share particular challenges and practices of procedures and holding in specific areas. So for example, we recently had pathology come along and share some of the challenges they're facing down in specialist clinics. Which has been really interesting for me personally. It's really shone a light on how many procedures we're doing here and the differences between departments, things from my nursing background that I hadn't considered or appreciated. And then the other main thing the committee is really focused on doing is supporting um, research and education projects that are on the topic of procedural holding across the organisation. The committee members are often involved in those and we also provide advice and feedback for the development of other resources outside of the committee as well. Okay. And look, in a podcast that we ran back in 2022, we spoke with Dr. Kathy Crock, who's a hematologist, about her experiences in the theatre with bone marrow aspirates when she first started at RCH back in the late 90s. And she actually described how patients had these procedures awake and essentially being held down, which sounds, oh my God, it sounds so bad. Almost unbelievable. <laughs> and through a lot of hard work, the process, she managed to kind of change the process dramatically. And I've actually since found out that the process for adults has now changed because they were doing them awake and apparently they're anesthetizing them now in most cases. What work or priorities has the committee been doing to improve procedural holding and the effect that this will have on a patient's well-being? Yeah, so we've been taking um, small steps to improve 
procedural holding here at RCH. And the first thing as the committee's been doing is identifying gaps. So that included ensuring we had consumer input to projects, knowledge of current practice and obviously a common language that we spoke about earlier, documentation and education. And through that, I think it's really shone the light on the fact that whilst procedural holding is a very common paediatric skill, it's not something, as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, that we receive a lot of education on. I can speak from a nursing perspective there's varied paediatric um, education in our undergrad degrees and very little on procedural holding. Mm. Often when we think about procedures, we're thinking about sedation and pain relief and things like that and actually doing the task. A lot of it ends up being on the job experience. On really, the job experience. Get, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The committee has been involved in a couple of projects and research projects to date two of which I've mentioned. So we had the first survey that we sent out to staff, understanding the terminology used. We've interviewed families on their experiences. And after that, we also ran focus groups with nurses discussing their experiences of procedures and procedural holding. So we're in the process of coding that. And those projects have all been um, guided by the procedural holding committee. The committee also worked closely with our EMR team here at RCH and other key stakeholders to develop what is now called the Procedure Hub. So we were particularly excited to get a dedicated prompt and space for clinicians to document if and what procedural holding is being used so that we can have a bit of a benchmark of what's actually happening out in practice. So this was launched in April this year and we're currently planning the evaluation of how it's being used in practice. Yeah. And we're beginning to develop some education resources to shine a light on procedural holding in paediatrics and highlighting the best practice principles, some of which Emma spoke to today, to ensure patients feel supported and comforted and have control in their procedures. Um, so again, we've provided support and input to some of these resources. So notably the Be Positive, um, A Child's Guide to Hospital Comfort Holds video, which is available now. And with the support of the Vera Scantleby Brown Scholarship, we're developing two videos for healthcare workers on the topic of procedural holding. So we're hoping they will be available in early 2024 via our external LMS. Yeah, which is learn.rch.org.au. Thank you. It's also just been a really great opportunity to provide space for staff to reflect on practice and discuss um, how holding occurs across a range of paediatric specialties. To take that one step further, the committee is hosting a procedural holding symposium here at RCH to really allow clinicians to come from across Australia to discuss procedural holding um, and really reflect on our practice and plan some collaborative work forward in this space. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And look, the committee has definitely been very, very busy. And it's great to see that so many resources are being developed that will ultimately improve the patient experience. To finish off, can you just give us a brief rundown as to the resources that people can access now that may actually help? And this is hopefully a way that we can bring together a few of the resources that we've talked about in this podcast. So that way people kind of know where to find them. And we're going to put all these in the show notes as well. Stacey, what about for families? Yeah, so for families, we have a range of kids' health info fact sheets um, and podcasts. So they're all available on the RCH website under kids' health information. Mm-hmm. The RCH Comfort Kids has a fantastic website as well with resources for children. 
And in particular, that's where you'll find the RCHB positive videos. And what about for clinicians, Emma? So there's the RCH nursing guideline, which is titled Procedure Management. It has lots of great points on all of the things we've talked about today. There's the RCH Education Hub podcast with Comfort Kids. Yep. And there's also an episode of the RCH Ethics podcast called Essential Ethics, where we talked about holding children for procedures. One other resource that's external to RCH that I'd recommend clinicians had a look at is the I Support website, which discusses rights for children during procedures. Yeah. And I'll also add that the Education Hub now has a newsletter for all healthcare professionals that people can register to access and the committee will uh, provide any updates via this newsletter as well for external clinicians. Thanks again, Stacey and Emma, for your contributions today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting.